2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with author and entrepreneur Jonathan Fields about his previous careers as a lawyer and a personal trainer, and about the good life. A good life is not a place at which you arrive, it's a lens through which you see and create your world. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: The idea of the good life has been around for a long time. It goes all the way back to Aristotle, who argued that the good life comes from moderation and other good habits, along with a little bit of luck. I don't think Jonathan Fields would disagree with that. But he has his own take on the subject for our hyper-competitive way of life. He has written several books, including Career Renegade, How to Make a Great Living Doing What You Love, and Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance. More recently, he founded The Good Life Project, which offers courses and produces podcasts and videos for professional and personal growth. Jonathan Fields, welcome to Design Matters.
2: It's fantastic to be here with you.
0: So, Jonathan, when you were in high school, I understand that your Latin teacher smuggled books of poetry into the class that the administration deemed too pornographic to include in the curriculum. What kind of poetry was it, and where did you grow up that well, the school responded in this way?
2: Thank you for that memory.
0: <laughs> <laughs> pornographic poetry. Let's had get this not, show started. Right. I
2: had not recalled that until you actually just said that now. <laughs> I grew up in a suburb of uh, New York City, Port Washington, also known as East Egg from the Great Gatsby, uh-huh. um, which is a beautiful little water town, and... Um, Yeah. In fact, I had completely forgotten that indeed. I remember there was a little bit of a hubbub (laughs) when our Latin teacher decided that we needed to actually be more engaged. And uh, yeah, she brought in some stuff that maybe was a little scandalous. I can't believe you found that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I understand you were an artist and a maker as a kid. What kind of art did you make?
2: You know, my mom has been a craftsperson pretty much her whole life. And uh, the basement in the old house that I grew up in, she was a potter. It was just this massive pottery studio and she would steal away there for days and days and, you know, just throwing and mixing chemicals. And she had this massive, you know, like gas-fired kiln that you could walk inside that she would spend like two days firing. And I, at one point, got a little old wooden kit of paints that was my grandfather's. And so I'm completely self-taught and just started playing and fell in love with painting at a really early age. I've never taken a class. I've never – and it was 100%. I started out with acrylics, moved to oils, would paint anything and everything that I could paint. This was the day where album art, album covers were astonishing. Like Frazetta was doing these like crazy, crazy things on album covers. And this was a day we're all, you know, we were all kicking around in jean jackets, and the thing to do was to wear a really cool painted album cover on the back of a jean jacket. So yes, around high school, yes. I started painting album covers on jean jackets, like the classic Boston one with the upside down guitar Paula spaceship. Shares
0: great cover. A
2: lot of Grateful Dead, a little Molly Hatchet, and Rush. Yes. Remember yes, of Roger course, Roger Dean's yeah. Rush
0: paintings. I mean, yes, paintings.
2: Yeah, a little bit of you too. Um, And I was constantly painting and also, like you said, making stuff. So I was a kid where on a Sunday I would get my dad to drive me down to the junkyard. We actually had a junkyard in my town. And we would just throw pieces of bicycles in the back of the truck. And I would come home and take duct tape and make these Franken bikes, you know, just putting together anything I could. And then, of course, the goal was to, you know, go and jump over every rock we could find until it fell apart. And hopefully we came out okay. But... It's really been in my blood for a long time. And in fact, the last five years or so, as I've gone much more digital and a lot of my creative outlet has turned into writing, I am so missing working with my hands right now and really planning on going back to that.
0: You've said that the process of making has always taken you somewhere, that it opens a door to something simultaneously internal and primal, yet also expansive and universal. Can you describe how and when that happens?
2: Yeah. So I'll give you a recent example. We moved apartments about a year and a half ago. And in, in doing that, as often happens in New York City, we scaled down in size a lot. So we left everything that we had basically furniture-wise, and we needed three new tables in the new place, and I decided I was going to make the tables. So um, I learned how to hand trowel a concrete table. And in making it, you know, it's it's the type of thing where – You get lost in it. You know, it's that famous, you know, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's flow state. For me, at least, I become completely absorbed in the process. And this is, again, like I jumped on the internet and, you know, literally found DIY concrete table and found a tutorial and just went and, you know, bought all the supplies myself and just started to play and make whatever I could. But it's, to me, nature and creativity are sort of the places where I touch stone. So I constantly find myself going back there.
0: For our listeners that might be interested in the results of Jonathan's table there actually is a video <laughs> of his making of the table and it's quite beautiful. Jonathan you've written extensively about how the older we get the more we leave making an art behind and have stated we trade it for knowledge work which has its own value but it's different than the experience of making not just an idea or story but a thing, one that exists materially in the world, born of body, sweat, hands, and tears, and maybe a bunch of wood, paint, metal, or whatever canvas calls you. So what on earth made you decide to go to law school?
2: (laughs) Um, (laughs) You've got to explain that I'm still working on an answer (laughs) to to that one. Um, So I'm also a lemonade stand kid. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. When I was in college, I barely attended any classes, Um, ended up majoring in political science because that's the only thing that really was nebulous enough for me to put it down on the resume.
0: (laughs) I love the way you said that, Um, (laughs) nebulous.
2: And I was just building a business. So um, I was a DJ. I was a club DJ who built like a big club DJ company when I was in college. And I decided that I had attended so little class that I really want to, when I graduated college, I went and actually travel for three months. And I came back and I really wanted to, t- to test myself intellectually to see what I was capable of. So I figured, let me, what other type of school could I go to? I looked at B school. I looked at physical therapy school, actually. Law school, I kind of looked at it and said, you know, no matter whether I practice or not, I think it'll equip me with a set of analytical skills that'll really let me thrive in the world. And in fact, I think it really did, you know, even, and I did practice for a little under five years, but by then I think I had already left behind so much of the artistic side to me and I was at a point in my life where I was honestly probably just really focused on how can I make money? You know, I was really focused on this carrot that seemed to be dangled in front of me. A lot of my friends were in the business world, you know, so I was fortunate. I worked really hard. I did very well in law school and I had some great opportunities coming out of it, but
0: well, you became a lawyer. You I became did. a big-time lawyer. Your first job out of law school was as an attorney for the US Securities and Exchange Commission.
2: Yeah. What did that we entail? Were... <laughs> How did you
0: get a job like that? You
2: know, here's the interesting thing, in an odd way, it wasn't our job. I worked in the New York office, which is enforcement. We found insider trading and market, all this stuff. My deeper fascination was with the psychology of how markets move. Mm. And the thing that I latched onto was actually something called technical trading, which is basically visualizing trading pattern, visualizing human behavior and anticipating it in the market. So there are all sorts of like graphing techniques and things called candlesticks and pattern recognition, where you learn to literally visually represent current, past, and predicted human behavior. So in a really weird way, it was actually tapping the pattern recognition and artistic side of me, but applying it in a market that just happened to where the, you know, the financial rewards were different.
0: You then went on to become a private equity securities lawyer uh, at, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Debevoise and Plimpton?
2: Debevoise and Plimpton, yeah.
0: Where you raised and launched more than $1 billion in private equity funds, advised a $50 billion fund investor, and coordinated the reorganization and merger of a $15 billion public investment fund complex.
2: So just That's to be clear... serious money. Right. Just to be clear, I was on a team... <laughs> that doesn't that, really
0: make yeah, a difference to me, Jonathan. I was one me, person in many <laughs> that was
2: on a team that did all these astonishing <laughs> things. But you know, the interesting thing about that experience, and I was only there for, I think it was around a year um, before my body literally gave up on me, was it's when you're surrounded by that much money all the time and the stakes are insanely high... You get a really warped sensibility about the value of money and in life. what way in what way on the one hand, you just think everybody you know around you is making hundreds of millions of dollars. on the other hand, it doesn't mean that much anymore. and the other thing is you're working so hard and living so little, at least in my case, I'm not going to make a general proclamation, but for me, I didn't have a life outside of that. It was destroying my health, it was destroying my relationships, it was destroying everything that I held dear and that I had claimed to hold dear before that. So you hit a certain point where it's just like the money becomes this weird, funny, distant thing and it just doesn't matter anymore on so many levels.
0: In all of your analysis of the patterns that you were recognizing, did you find any common denominators in the people that have that much money
2: it's interesting because I went from there and I talked my way into a $12 an hour job as a personal trainer um, I know when I just wanted to completely leave. But our clients were essentially the same clients I was working with as a lawyer. They were captains of industry, socialites, celebrities. What I learned really quickly is that we're all the same people. It doesn't matter if you have a couple hundred million dollars in the bank. You hurt, you bleed, you cry, you laugh, you connect we all suffer and and experience joy in the same way. It's just the source of those things can sometimes change, but you know fundamentally, human nature is human nature. The human condition has changed, but we as people really haven't.
0: You mentioned that you quit your job and got talked your way into a twelve dollars yeah. an hour personal trainer gig. but before that, your body essentially rejected I your did. your law career. What happened?
2: I was – we were on a deal, and the type of work that I did was very deadline-driven. We were on a particular deal where we were doing a public offering in a foreign country, and the day after we were doing it, the investment laws would have changed, which means if we didn't hit our deadline, our client loses you know, an astonishing amount of money. Basically, nobody was sleeping. We were working for a number of weeks, and I felt – physically ill, and and probably three, four, five days before the deadline, I started to feel this pain in the middle of my body. And every day, every breath, every hour, it got worse and worse and worse. But this is what we got paid to do. We got paid to do the impossible. So I just ignored it until you know the last day. I couldn't stand up. I could barely breathe. It was an excruciating pain. We, we hit our deadline. I took a cab home. It gets really fuzzy in sort of the 24 hours surrounding this, because I think it was just in another state. I passed out of home for a couple of hours, woke up, and I realized there was something really wrong. You know, went to my doctor immediately who turned white upon examining me and said, there's a large mass in the middle of your body that wasn't there recently during your physical. Whisked me around, ended up in emergency surgery because from all we can gather, essentially, there was a huge infection that was brewing in the middle of my body, my immune system from the type of work that I was doing and the lack of sleep and had essentially just cratered and this thing exploded and ate a hole through my intestine from the outside in. So thank God, you know, everything was okay. Surgery went great. I healed completely. But the, you know, when your body rejects your career, it, you kind of have to listen. And that was a wake-up call. And that was sort of, you know, when I started saying, okay, I have no interest in the carrot that's being dangled in front of me. I saw the lives of the partners. If that was your passion, fantastic, it wasn't mine. And I couldn't justify spending you know the next 10 years working towards that and potentially doing this to my body when I had no interest in being in that place.
0: You left a very secure, very high-paying job to pursue something unknown, uncertain. I find that terrifying, mm. <laughs> at least for me. Do you think you would have done this if you hadn't gotten sick?
2: I think I would have. I think it would have taken longer. It also, in a really weird way, it served as evidence to those whose probably approval I was tacitly or maybe not so tacitly seeking at that point in my life to make such an abrupt change. Because it kind of said, okay, it's not just that it's bad. It's, It's really bad. I mean, if it's he's at a point where he's you know, falling so badly apart that um, it's putting him in the hospital, then something really has to change. So I do think I would have changed, but it probably would have taken longer. I mean, look, the flip side of this is I, I had a power job. I had a great business card. I was making phenomenal money. I had worked really hard to get to that place. So it's hard to walk away from, from all of that and not feel like you're walking away from everything that you've done to get you to that place. But – the entrepreneur also kicked in with me at some point, and I'm a, I'm a huge believer in not making decisions based on sunk costs, and that's financial costs, emotional costs, physical costs, spiritual costs, and it was just time.
0: You've said that money is a lousy metric for a life well-lived, mm. yet as a culture, as a species, we often use that metric to determine our self-worth, our ability to be happy, Did you see that in your clients when you were working with these high wealth people? that that made very little difference to their happiness? Or did you find that they were generally more content with more money?
2: Yeah, I found very little difference in their happiness. And in fact, since then, in the years since then, I've actually um, spent a fair amount of time in the research in the area. And the research is pretty crystal clear that up until, you know, if you are having trouble paying your rent, if you can't make your basic cost, then every dollar more that you earn does increase your happiness, your experience of life satisfaction. Once you hit sort of a baseline threshold, every dollar you make above that does very little to increase your happiness.
0: So it's just a hedonistic treadmill.
2: It is to a certain extent, you know, and there's great research on this now. And then the interesting thing is in the last literally two or three years, the research is diverging again a little bit. In what way? First focus, a lot of the research was focused on happiness, which is a really hard word to define. And that's distinct from fulfillment or life satisfaction, because on any given day, you can say. Like yesterday I was happy or yesterday I was unhappy. But if somebody asked you the question, are you satisfied with your life? You can say, yeah, I I live a great life. Yesterday was a lousy day, but I live a good life. What's interesting is that the latest numbers that I've seen, um, which are using more of like the Gallup International data now, which is a huge, huge data set, is showing that while happiness on a day-to-day basis tends to hit a threshold. In the U.S., it's at around $75,000 a year in earnings. Life satisfaction continues lockstep with increased earnings. So I think it's too early to really understand what's happening there. But I'm fascinated by the relationship between money, between day-to-day happiness slash hedonism, pleasure, and also just the bigger experience of, yeah, life is good.
0: A month and a half after 9-11, with a three-month-old daughter, you decide to open a yoga studio in the heart of New York City. Leave the law career behind. You're now going to open a yoga studio. I understand you signed the lease on your studio on September 10th, 2001. Mm -hmm. What made you continue forward with the endeavor after 9-11?
2: Yeah. Talk about a tough time in the city. You know, it was a couple of things that made me continue on because I woke up that morning and like, you know, all, anyone else who's a longtime New Yorker, um, the first thought that goes through your mind is, my God, you know, who did I know? Because almost nobody that I know who lives here got out without losing somebody that day. And the second thing for me was I just signed a six-year lease on a floor in a building um, with a three-month-old baby married in a new home. And I was about to launch a business into what was a sea of pain. And I was very conflicted about whether that was good or not. You know, the the good part was that I was looking to build a community around healing, which the city was never more in need of, I think, you know, certainly in my lifetime. The bad is it was still a huge financial risk for me. So I just kind of trusted my gut, you know, conversations with my wife which were tough conversations because it's not just my decision. And then we moved forward with it and you know, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a marketer and I love to create messaging and experiences. Um, but we had to profoundly change the way that we were going to actually bring this thing to life to really just honor what had happened in the city. But we did it. And about two months later, we came to life. And oddly enough, the first major piece of media that I had gotten was in the New York Times a couple months later. It was the front page of the job section, Sunday job section. There was a, you know, above the fold half page piece. We were featured in that piece and a photograph of me teaching yoga was sort of like front and center on that piece. The title of that piece, the, the focus of it was businesses that had taken an inadvertent benefit because of 9-11. So it was this really mixed emotion in me. I was so proud. And and that was actually the launch of the job section. So they they photographed that cover and it was on billboards and buses all over the city.
0: Wow. What mixed messaging.
2: Yeah. You know, thankfully, we built a really nice branding profile after that and a lot of other placements. But it was an odd time in New York. And you were here then, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm a
0: native New Yorker. Right.
2: So, you know, there's a side which nobody talks about, which is in the six months after, there was an openness. There was a brother and a sisterhood. Everyone was walking around saying, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. Because we just wanted to.
0: Yeah. We We had just We compelled to.
2: Right. And, you know, as people came out of it, that went away, too. It's odd to say, you know, I miss that. I would never have wanted what incited it to happen again. But that energy was stunning.
0: Did you have an adjustment period to going from being a high-powered, well-paid lawyer to a yoga instructor?
2: Yeah, um, largely to my ego.
0: (laughs) So what was that like and how did you manage through it?
2: So there was a step in the middle, you know, and actually a couple of steps. One is I knew I wanted to go back to entrepreneurship. I knew I wanted to be physically oriented, because in addition to entrepreneurship and making an art, I was also always very physically inclined. I trained as a gymnast for the first half of my life also. So I'm very somatically oriented. So I thought about entrepreneurship and health and fitness and wellness, um, which is why I ended up talking my way into personal training studio, because I just I wanted to learn that industry from the ground up and I I kind of Knew I wanted to build a better mousetrap. After six months, left that, opened my own company. We grew that nicely and sold it to some investors after two and a half years. I knew that I was going to a place where I was going to take a big financial hit. And thankfully, I was in a position where I could actually bank you know, a chunk of money before I left, knowing that I was going to need it to cover myself while I learned a new industry. So for me, the biggest shift, I think, was really, it was emotional, it was psychological, because I was going from this prestigious job To something where I was, you know, wearing running shoes and tights and beat up old t-shirts. And I remember, you know, like running around Central Park with a client and just like in the back of my mind saying, what if like one of my old clients sees me? You know, how would they judge me? The interesting thing is your success becomes your biggest convincer, both for yourself and for anybody who would ever have doubted you when you left. And when I left the law, a lot of the talk at people at my level, sort of mid-level associates, was, you know, oh, what a shame. He couldn't take it. The notes that I got that were the most encouraging were partner level, saying, God bless, go for it, keep me in the loop. And that was another signal that, huh, maybe this is the right move for me. But it takes time. And uh, I'm not without ego. So, so it you know, it probably wasn't really until I started to flourish in the next adventure and then the next and then the next until I was really like, yeah, I'm good. And then people further into their legal careers who weren't getting what they wanted out of it started coming back to me and saying, hey, how'd you do that?
0: <laughs> Success is always the best revenge, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> if you see the world that way, which is kind of terrible to say. <laughs> um, but you sold the studio and decided to do something else. So yeah. talk about the journeyed to that decision.
2: Yeah. I mean, we we ended up flourishing. We ended up doing really beautifully. We grew. Along the way, I was also really kind of, and I became a teacher also, so I taught. And what I realized was that this wasn't my future, that I actually wanted to create on a different level. And I started to really develop a Jones to write. I was doing a ton of writing on the marketing side of things and creating editorial for my business and then for other companies that were reaching out to me. And I had a unique lens, I think, and a, a different enough story. So I went out, and I just old school, first book that I sold, there was no magic to it. I wrote a query letter, sent it out to my you know, zillion agents, and just all the traditional path that was really fortunate was able to sell the first book. Once I knew that was sold, I knew I was on my way out. I had a company that was doing really well. It, was, it had its own management team. I was barely working there. But it wasn't fair, because it was a company built around community, and a community needs a shepherd. And I was checked out. So I made the decision to sell the business and really never looked back, um, started working on the first book and started to focus a lot of my energies in the online world. My initial focus was really because I wanted to know where the book marketing world was going and became really clear to me, maybe we can't predict very well like how we'll feel about things, but I, I'm decent enough at sort of intuiting trends and the marketing side, it was just so clear that everything was going to be moving online. So I started blogging and that just morphed into this whole other exploration. You know, now I think closing in on probably a thousand articles written and now I don't even blog all that much anymore because we started another company, Good Life Project, and that moved into video production and audio and working on, you know, wrote a second book and working on the third one now. So, but I'm still not making with my hands. (laughs) Mm. Um, yet. 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 But it, it's in the process.
0: Well, your first book, Career Renegade How to Make a Great Living Doing What You Love, is a book that really does bust open the notions of how people can make the lives they want to make for themselves. Uncertainty Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance is a book about living with ambiguity. Mm and uncertainty obviously that's the name of the book i understand you don't like the name
2: of the book purely from a marketer standpoint it's actually a terrible frame for book sales you know as a marketer you can frame things as aspirational and positive or you can take a negative frame um negative frame is much harder to work with so the gambit was I would become known as the uncertainty guy, you know, in uh-huh. quotes, and like maybe I could pull that off. You know, anybody thinks about uncertainty within a large-scale creative or innovative endeavor, okay, I'm become the go-to guy. I literally wrote the book on it. The risk is that well the risk is actually really clearly shown in, in an interesting thing that happened to me. So part of what I do is speak, and I speak around very often topics that I write about. At one point I was talking about a keynote with a large technology corporation and everything was great they wanted me the last minute the person who was organizing the event called me and said hey listen I know we agreed and like we're really I ex- I so excited to bring you here but I just talked to the CMO and even though I explained what it's about like I told him the title of your book he just thinks the topic's a real downer so we're not <laughs> going to do it so that literally like I can I can track the title of the book to losing me you know, very real amounts of income. You know, the, the idea was I want to provoke people, and the idea was um, uncertainty is inevitable. To me, the definition of suffering is trying to lock down a future which is unlockdownable, which is the way that almost all of us spend the vast majority of our lives.
0: Why is that, Jonathan? Why do we live this way?
2: Yeah, you know. So when I start to go into the research, a lot of it has to do with the way that our brains are wired. Um, by the time we reach adulthood, you know, the fear center in our brain, when we're faced with either making a decision or taking an action in the face of uncertainty, imperfect information, which is every decision that we have to make, the fear center in our brains lights up the amygdala. And that send, creates a cascade of electrical and chemical signals that make us feel physically uncomfortable, sometimes to the point of being physically ill. We don't want to feel that way. So we generally do one of two things to not feel that way anymore. Either we rush so fast through something just because we want to get it done with and not feel that way that we miss incredible opportunities because we can't handle living in that place where we have to act and decide, but we don't know how it's going to turn out. Or we do the exact opposite, which is we backpedal and we pull back and back and back and back and back until we've backed out of this thing, not because... It's not astonishing, not because we don't want with every fiber of our being to make it happen, but because we couldn't handle the physiological feeling and the emotional feeling that that then rippled into in us. You know, And the sad thing is that there is no such thing as possibility without uncertainty. It doesn't exist. So when you act in a way that removes the uncertainty, you also act in a way that removes possibility. And I think we don't realize that that's what we're doing. We just don't want to feel uncomfortable.
0: Is there any way to train the amygdala to be stronger, more impervious to that suffering? I really suffer from that myself. It's almost to a point where it can be debilitating.
2: Yeah. And I'm I'm right there with you. Um, Most of what I write, especially if it's a book size project, it's a personal question. You know, I, I would create all sorts of stuff, but I had this conversation with my mom over the years. We always get what we want but not without blood in the water. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, "I can that not be my karma?" You know, can you and me both be. Yeah, and you know, it's like I'm I breathe creation. You know, it's that's I have to do that. It's in my DNA, but I don't want to suffer so much. So I started asking the question, like are there people who don't feel that? Or are there people who feel it, but they've figured out a way to be okay? And the answer is, yes, there are people who don't feel it. They're the freaks of nature, and you don't want to try and emulate them because you can't. They're literally wired differently than us. But there are a ton of people, really high-level creators and innovators, doers, builders, who feel it just as much as we do, but they've built all sorts of practices into their lives. That allow them to be okay. So
0: they can tolerate it somehow. Yeah,
2: exactly. So then the question, of course, becomes, well, what are those things? What and that was things? the rabbit hole that, you know, I really went down with that last book. The interesting thing is for me and for everybody, the answers are really right in front of us. We're looking for the app. We're looking for the technology. We're looking for the strategy and the technique. But, you know, the killer app is us. The killer app is our brain. The practices are really simple and straightforward, done every single day. Things as fundamental as I have a daily mindfulness practice and I came to that practice actually while I was writing this book but in part because I started to really understand how that rewires your brain and allows you to be in this place of sustained uncertainty without massively falling apart but also in part because I was dealing with something that was just really brutal for me and I was experimenting to see if that would help me through it. And it did on both. It took me from a really dark place back first to baseline and then from baseline to, like plus a thousand. And what I found was as a side effect, it's allowed me to be in sustained creative places with high levels of uncertainty with much more equanimity. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a side effect that I'm good with. You know, so that's just one example of something that you can do on a daily basis.
0: I asked one of my students – well, I asked my my undergrad students every semester – What do you think would be the worst possible thing that could happen if you went after something that you really, really wanted and you didn't achieve it? And probably the truest answer I've ever heard to that question was that he worried that he would die of heartbreak And I do think that that's where that suffering comes from. You don't go after what you want Mm. because you're afraid that if you don't get what you want, that you would die of that suffering, that you could never recover. You have a wonderful way of addressing this in your TED Talk Mm. where you talk about actually creating a plan for what you could do. If you went after something and you happen to fail, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, and you know, the single biggest heartbreak that people have is not the stuff that they tried and failed at; it's the stuff they never tried at.
0: Right, the regret. Yeah. Regret is what kills you. Yeah, not failure. That's
2: that is the big thing that eats at us, you know, till our dying days. So, the, when when I offer the TED Talk. Yeah, the question was, okay, if you have to make a decision and you might fail, like, what do you do? How do you handle that? How do you move through that with more grace and ease? And essentially I said, you know, most people ask the what if I fail question, which is legit. You have to ask that question because you may. So you ask the question, what if I fail? But then you add a couple of questions to it before you just hit spin with the failure scenario, Your and, like, scenario right, and as then you're, you're just like it. ah, um, which is what most of us do. We're like, what if I fail? Oh, that's evil. It's horrible. It's I'm gonna, i like isolated, cast out. I'm gonna live in a desert island alone. You know, like having to eat something really nasty, um, forever. Right? Okay. So <laughs> Bad first, <lady>. right. right. <laughs> so be realistic about it. So actually, paint a realistic failure scenario. What's this gonna look like? Then paint a realistic. How are you going to recover from the failure? And then you, you have to ask two other questions, which is. What if I do nothing and then what if I succeed? What most people find is that the power of the what if I succeed scenario balances out if not far exceeds the negative power of the failure scenario. The most horrifying scenario if things aren't going the way you want them to go is the what if I do nothing because there's no sideways in life. You know, there's only – there's up or down and if you're not applying energy to go up, you're slowly going to go down. So if you know, you're tired and you're achy and you're not satisfied with what you're doing or who you're working with now, if you do nothing to change that, in five years, you're not just going to feel the same. Every one of those metrics will be worse, 10 years worse, 15 years worse. And if you paint a realistic picture of that for most people, that is the really scary scenario. So before you make your decision, answer all of those questions and then make a decision based upon like a fuller basket of visuals where you can really understand, oh, this is really what I'm deciding. It changes the decisions that a lot of people make. I'm trying to remember if I asked this question at the end of that talk, because my thinking has changed a bit since that talk, too. In the self-help world, it's sort of popular to say, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? I actually don't think it's a great question to ask. You know, the better question is, what would you do if you knew that you might fail, but it was still worth it to do?
0: Mm, Wonderful reframing. Jonathan, let's talk about the Good Life Project.
2: Sure.
0: Project doesn't feel like an accurate word for your <laughs> It's It's a little bigger than that. <laughs> it's really days. more like a movement. It feels more about building an extraordinary <laughs> yeah. life. And That was a, my
2: noncommittal branding. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, well, we'll have to talk about that. Um, and and really about living a full existence. Mm. Um, it's about becoming a creator and a leader and a mentor and a maker and an artist. What made you decide to jump into this initiative and, and yeah. make this happen?
2: You know, I think it's a continuation of my love of building, of creating things and answering the big questions in life. It's kind of fun for me to then figure out ways to actually create professional endeavors that allow me to in some way, shape or form build my living around the pursuit of those questions I'm an autodidact. I don't learn well in group settings. I don't learn well when somebody else is pacing me. I love to have control. And I would much rather have the ability to sit down with people who I feel in some way are living a part of the answer to the question, what does it mean to live a good life? And just talk to them and ask them about, like, what did you do? What didn't you do? What worked? What didn't work? So the Good Life Project, in a weird way, is my excuse to be able to spend on a pretty full-time basis, you know, years now of my life. Just finding these people and sitting down one-to-one and learning from them as my teachers and finding, like, pieces of the puzzle. And now after hundreds of these conversations, the really cool thing is that you start to see patterns emerging and you start to be able to put pieces of the puzzle together um, that really help guide your decisions, my decisions, my life, and understand, you know, what's, what's really working and what's really not working beyond the fluff. Um, I read a ton I'm more interested in people who are living this so it's really this is my living breathing classroom and then to turn it into a business venture that allows me to call it my living you know we take this and from that we produce media you know we share these conversations um, for first, free for free yeah totally for free I mean these were you know first for the first two years broadcast quality video you know, like shot on location with a crew and now we've moved to audio just because it allows me so much more freedom to do some really interesting stuff.
0: And you don't have to worry about how you look.
2: Well, there's that too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so my hair is jumping out of my head very rapidly now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but since its launch in 2012, The Good Life Project has grown it's an education venture. It's a tightly knit global community. Can you talk a little bit about some of what you're doing beyond the podcast and, yeah. and the video casts? Because it's really remarkable. Yeah.
2: So you know, the bigger thing is it's a mission to really to inspire, educate, and support people in the quest to live more engaged, more connected, more vital lives. The business engine behind it, there are three legs to the stool. What we've talked about is media. We produce videos, we produce podcasts. There may be documentaries or other stuff in the future. On the education side, we offer, um, you know, we build courses and programming. I'm kind of fascinated with the way that people contribute to the world and build their livings. And because that seems to be the way we spend the vast majority of our days. Um, so can we do that in a way that, you know, really lights us up and, and really also contributes to the world and lets us take care of ourselves financially? You know, I live in New York City. I have to make a reasonable amount of money to be okay. And then the, the third part, so we have media, we have education, then we have community. So we're really building. I mean, we have groups that are now independently meeting around the world. We didn't organize this, you know. There's an, there's an every Monday meetup group where they just there's like Good Life Project co working in Portland. They just, just hang out on Mondays together. And doesn't that make your heart burst? It's it's really cool. <laughs> um, and it's 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 around a shared because people ask us all the time, like, you know, what what's uniting everyone? We two years ago we launched a summer camp. For you know, makers and world shakers for people in our community and we literally take over a kids' sleepaway camp for three and a half days. We had three hundred and fifty people there this year. And it's not just New Yorkers. We have people from Japan, South Africa, all over the Americas, all over Europe, Australia. And the thing that I think unites everybody around this is it's a shared set of values. You know, so on our we have a creed. And it's a set of 35 beliefs that I just kind of started, well, what do I believe? Like, what have I learned from all of these conversations? What are some of your
0: favorite of the 35? I know it's a terrible question, but yeah. I just figured <laughs> I'd have to let you choose.
2: Um, people matter. Meaning matters. A good life is not a place at which you arrive. It's a lens through which you see and create your world. Everyone's like, oh, I'm almost there. I'll get there. I'll get there. When I get there, I'll live my good life. No, you choose whether you're going to live it in this moment. The fact that you don't have to be different, you know, you just own the fact that you already are, which is like a nice branding <laughs> lesson mixed in there too. It's really, it's about respecting humanity, your own and other people, being really giving with your heart. So it's a lot of really basic stuff. It is amazing. I think the thing that makes people come together and just form their own pockets around the world now is they just, they lock into this shared set of values. I'm like, yeah, I want to be with people like that.
0: Last weekend... You shared something on Facebook that you stated makes you nervous. It's an 18-step framework to harness the power of revolutions and movements to launch, grow, or reignite a business, an idea, or a brand. And you originally created this just for yourself, but the reason I'm assuming it's making you nervous is you are now sharing the entire thing for free. Tell us more about this thing, this 18-step framework.
2: Yeah. It's part of my pattern recognition brain again. I'm constantly looking to figure out how to build businesses and communities in a really cool, conscious way. I became really fascinated with what was happening with revolutions around the world, especially around the time of the Arab Spring. And I started wondering, um, could you harness the power of movements and revolutions to actually launch and grow a commercial venture, a business, a brand, a division, a product? Or would that totally bastardize the the ethic of what the idea of revolutions and movements was about? So I started to go deep into the research on nonviolent revolution and a whole bunch of other things. And what I realized was that you actually can do it, but you have to do it in a very specific way. And if you mess up, you also risk being labeled predatory and opportunistic. And you may, in fact, be being predatory and opportunistic you know, if you're not genuinely in service of and – You know, there are a lot of people who can build messaging and market in a way which would rally people into a frenzy. But then they just want to sort of swap their product into something when it's really not a solution to the problem that people need. So the bigger question was can you bring together people and rally them to not just buy what you're selling but to actually um, help you make it? Mm. And so that they become almost like your your co-creators and your evangelists and your hard fans. Um, can you do it in a way that feels ethical and organic and is powerful and has the potential for exponential rather than incremental growth and impact? Yeah. And this was all for me. This was never supposed to be a thing. This was, I was looking at how to do this for my own ventures and ideas. And um, I shared it the first time as a keynote in a very a small private event as at the, the request of a friend who was running it. And people kind of lost their minds. So so, uh, I ended up whisked into a series of other events and eventually um, decided that, you know, we just started sharing on a larger and larger scale. And the response has been really fun.
0: Wonderful. Well, good luck with it. It sounds phenomenal. The last question I want to ask you is about a piece you wrote on the Good Life Project website titled, Go Public with Your Bad Self. Can you talk about what that actually means?
2: I think fundamentally it's about bring all of yourself to the world we tend to only especially in social media um we tend to just bring the fantasy self mm, that we, we you know, that everybody ourselves. will like yes. to the world um where the truth is the deepest connections the biggest growth the most meaningful things happen when you actually show your quirky side your geeky side your vulnerable side that's what people love and that's where you get to light up along the way too
0: Jonathan, thank you so much for being on Design Matters.
2: Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: To find out more about Jonathan Fields, you can go to his website at jonathanfields.com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Milman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.